Well, good morning, church. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we're going to talk about prayer again. And um, in Paul's writings, there are some great examples of prayer. We've already visited one uh, in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And uh, this morning, another example of verses 14 through 19 and 20 and 21 actually go with it as well. And uh, then uh, at the end of this book, another great example of biblical praying. And so we want to jump into that and try to see what uh, God would do as far as our lives are concerned in correcting our prayer, informing our prayer, uh, facilitating our prayer. Uh, It's a a fact that most people, nearly everybody prays. I think I said in a previous sermon, even atheists pray sometimes. And uh, so... Uh, prayer is not unusual for any of us or for most people. They know something of what that means. But I fear that for too many people, the content and motivation of our praying is like the fifth grade boy who was overheard praying at night, Tokyo, Tokyo, Tokyo. And his dad walked by his room and said, son, what in the world are you doing? He said, oh, I'm praying. And he said, praying, Tokyo? Tokyo, Tokyo, what kind of prayer is that? He said, oh, I missed a test on my, uh, missed a question on my geography test today, and I'm just praying that God would make Tokyo the capital of Mexico before my teacher grades my test. (laughs) Well, some of us are about that trivial in our praying, aren't we? Uh, Those are the only kind of things we can think of to pray is, Lord, get me out of uh, some small matter that I've gotten myself into, and uh, so prayer to us is more like a a spare tire than a, a steering wheel. Uh, when we get in trouble, we turn to prayer, and uh, otherwise, we've got this, God. Um, so we, we, we don't want to reduce our prayers to becoming a trivial tool that we use whenever we feel the need. Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, we need to be reminded it's from a prison cell. It's most likely, as far as he's concerned, it, 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 some of his last hours on earth. He doesn't know if he's going to get out or not. And the astounding thing, the amazing thing about Paul's prayers is that we never see in them this kind of praying. Oh God, get me out of here. What did I deserve? What did I do to deserve to be in prison like this? I have served you. I have done what you've asked me to do. And is this how you reward me with hardship and trouble? What kind of God are you? I'm going to mobilize the church. I'm going to put it on Facebook. I'm going to tell everybody how hard my life is so that all Christians everywhere, all across the world, will just fall to their knees in, in great uh, incessant prayer and just kind of bail me out of this right now. We never see that from Paul. Instead, his direction, his concentration in prayer is something totally different. His concern is not for himself. His concern is for the church. Oh, if God would only raise up some Christians whose great concern would be the church. Not themselves, not the inconveniences of living in a first world country. Things like, oh, my television went out. Oh, God, what am I going to do? First world problems, that's what we have. And we never raise our eyes to anything that's beyond ourselves. If God would just grant us some Christians who would make the church their great concern. Well, maybe we can learn from Paul about the power and purpose of praying. And maybe, just maybe by God's grace, we'll begin to inch toward a a different direction in praying and hear different things coming from our mouths besides, oh God, help me through the next minor inconvenience that I have coming my way. Look at this. Look at Paul's submission, first of all. If we're going to have this kind of power in praying that the apostle has, there's something that has to be going on in our hearts. And so here's Paul's submission in his praying in verse 14 in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. Look what he says, for this reason. Now, Paul started um, down this road in verse 1 of this chapter for this reason. And then he had a holy rabbit trail. And some of you know what that's like. Uh, You are in Sunday school with me. 
and uh, I learned uh, to say too much at the beginning like Paul does. So he has 13 verses 2 through 13 is he has a digression here and so he addresses uh, some uh, things about the mystery of Christ and his calling and so on and so uh, it's not a trivial matter it's it's a it's a great section of scripture he talks about the mystery hidden for ages and God and and the manifold wisdom of God and so uh, this this side track that he takes this uh, this margin that he decides to attack he does that and now he gets back on where he began in verse one for this reason and so he's back to that again so he says for this reason I bow my knees before the father the submission of the apostle here notice there is submission in his motivation for this reason what what reason what, what, what is the motivation of his praying? What is the motive? What is it that's moving him to pray? For this reason. What, what reason? The reason that he's describing, the reason that he's uh, hinting at or alluding to here is, is this reason. That God has formed one new humanity from people from every ethnicity who turn to Christ to be saved from judgment and sin. For this reason, it's not that God has taken one ethnic group and called them his people and everybody else is scrambling to become Jewish. That is not the reason that Paul is praying. That is not what's moving. And remember this, Paul was Jewish by ethnicity. Never forget that. So what is Paul saying? This astounding thing that God has done and that has always been his plan His plan has always been the church from day one. Always the church. And that the church would consist of those who, like Abraham, are justified by faith. By grace, through faith in Christ. That has always been God's plan. And so now, it has come to light that that's God's plan. That there is a new humanity. There is a new nation. There is a new Israel. And it is a nation that is not dependent upon the way people look outwardly. It doesn't depend upon anyone's ethnicity. It doesn't depend upon geography. It doesn't depend upon culture. This one new humanity depends upon one thing. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? That is the only qualification to be a part of this new people of God. That's why Paul comes to God humbled and submitting to Him and looking to Him. He's not worried about ethnic distinctions anymore. There's no such thing as the Black Caucus in Christianity. There's no such thing as white supremacy or whiteness in Christianity. This is about Christ and Christ alone. The rest of it needs to be dropped and discarded in the bin of failure of humanity to try to make and remake society without Christ as the center. Submission in his motivation. We come to God in prayer. We need to have in our minds this incredible news that the wisdom and power of God has done it. And this should humble us to bow before him. So there's submission not only in his motivation but in his manner. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. Do you see? This is the apostle to the Gentiles. This is a man with supreme education. This is a man who spoke at least two languages fluently. This is a man who is a lawyer. This is a man who's attained in this world. This is a man that at one point in his life, he was a rock star. Everywhere he stepped off a chariot, it drew a crowd. Saul is here. Kids would clamor to see him. And now he bows his knees before the Father. Why? Well, let's deal with something directly and then we'll say it. Let's deal with this first of all. 
outward posture in prayer in and of itself has no importance whatsoever. Outward posture in and of itself in prayer has no importance whatsoever. What does God desire? The humble heart. You will not despise, O Lord. Contrition of heart. Lowliness of heart. Prayer doesn't cause anything. Prayer is the expression of dependency upon God. And a lack of dependency upon ourselves. And when we recognize the smallness and the weakness of self and the greatness and the vastness and the glory of God, then our hearts are humbled before Him. And so the outward posture in and of itself matters not. In fact, in the Bible, in prayer, we see people standing in prayer. We see people kneeling in prayer. We see people sitting in prayer. We see people lying on the ground on their face in prayer. All kinds of postures. So the posture in and of itself is not the issue. The issue is the heart. Now, we would go on to say this. If the heart is humbled, then the body will follow. Sometimes in our church services, I don't do it too often because so many of you have had knee replacements. But sometimes we'll kneel. We'll just get in the altars and get in the, in, the, in the aisles and we'll kneel down and we'll pray. And it's a sweet time. But every time after that, almost every time, I can't remember a time it hasn't happened. I, some old saint of God on a walker will come to me and say, Pastor, I'm sorry I couldn't pray today. I just can't kneel anymore. And, and, and again, it's the, the idea that, oh, if you can't assume that particular posture, then you didn't really pray. That is not the issue. That's not it. That Paul shows us here that he kneels before the Father. What he's trying to express to us is simply this. To have a heart of reverence. And to have a mind that has its attention upon God. It's not just the posture that matters here. What is at stake here is the submission of the heart. And Paul is emphasizing that submission and humility are essential to answered prayer. How opposite is this heart attitude from what we hear in prayer so often today? All of this friend speak with God. Dear God, um, we just come here today um, to um, really just um, love on you, God. Um, what in the Sam Hill is that? Do you even, would you even, you, you would even talk to your boss that way. Absolutely it's true. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. It is so true. What a friend we have in Jesus. That's absolutely true. But we must never forget that our friend is an exalted king. And when we come to our friend in prayer, we must come with an attitude that recognizes the exalted nature of his office. And we come to him with humble hearts knowing that we're nothing and he's everything. And if it wasn't for the fact that he came for sinners, we would have absolutely no hope and we would have no future except a burning hell. And so we come to him with a boldness because of what he's done. But our boldness is shrouded with a cloak of humility. And that's what Paul's doing here. If Paul bowed his knees in prayer. If he had such an attitude of humility in prayer. How much more should we find ourselves at a place humbled before God. Looking to him. With all of our confidence in him and none in ourselves. Paul's submission is praying. And one thing that we need to get hold of is submission and praying. Humility. Total dependency upon God. Now what else does he show us about prayer? This, now he shows us this, the foundation for his plea here. His, he's given us this is his submission and praying. This is what it looks like. But what is the foundation for his plea? Where is he coming from? 
You, you have to have something to hold on to when you ask for a favor, right? When you go to a friend to ask for a favor, you've got to have something to hold on to. Either the length of your friendship or the fact that they owe you a favor or the fact that you know that they're the kind of person that will do this for you. There has to be some reality to hold on to. And Paul points out, what is that foundation that he's standing on when he offers this prayer to the Lord? First of all, he speaks of the power and purpose of God. Verse 15, he says this. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, I hate doing this, but I got to do it. Um, the translation here in the ESV. They, they have here uh, every family. Every family. The word every. And, and, and that word in the Greek can be every. It's, it's not inaccurate that they've done this. But the word can also mean whole, the whole family, the entire family. And when I'm looking at the context of what Paul is speaking of here, he just talked about in chapter 2, fellow citizens and members of the household of God. He's just talked about that concept. And then he's gone on in chapter 3 and talked about who's in that family, who's in the household of God. It's not based upon ethnicity. It's based upon regeneration and salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he's been talking about that concept. So it appears to me that Paul is not speaking here in verse 15 of all the different nations in the world. He's talking about the whole family of God. And so who would be named? What, what, is, what does this mean? Every nation in the world, how, how are they uh, named? How do they derive their name from God? On, uh, who Every family in heaven on earth is named. And what ethnicity would be that in heaven? I mean, what's that speaking of? So it, it seems to me that it makes sense here, the most sense from the context to say from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And what is the name? The Father's family. That's what it's speaking of. And so when we're talking about the whole family in heaven on earth, what would it be? It would be the church militant and the church triumphant. Do you know those terms? It means the church now, all of us, every believer. We're not talking about a particular local church at this moment. We're talking about all true believers who believe the true faith Everywhere, no matter what their brand is, if they truly are in Christ, by faith in Christ alone, apart from works, that whole family on earth, and not just them, but all of those who have gone before us, who are also in a faith relationship with Christ, who are in heaven, we're all named after Him. We're all named the Father's family. And so here he's talking of this great purpose. What is God's great purpose? He's already spoken of it. That all followers of Christ from all different ethnicities will be a part of the Father's family. He's speaking of the family of the redeemed. And it is God's power and it is God's purpose that has done this. It is not man that has done it. The devil tries to imitate it. The devil is constantly trying to show us, oh, this is what diversity looks like. And so there are these artificial quotas that we put on people. And we try to make laws and force people and all these things. That's the devil's farce. That, that is not in any way a heart change on anybody's part. Listen, man, you can take two cats and tie their tails together and flip them over the clothesline. They might be united, but you don't have unity. And that's what the world's trying to do right now. And it's even seeped into Christianity. Where you're looked at as a church, you know, that you're more godly or not godly. Based upon, we're supposed to judge whether our church is really doing it for Jesus or not. Based upon skin tone. Are you kidding? Now we're going to judge each other after the flesh? After we have begun with the Spirit, now we're going to judge according to the flesh? And that's what we got going on in Christianity now. That's become the, 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 the holy grail. And I'm like, dude, our church is in a cornfield. We, 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 I mean, we, the, the biggest thing we got in the area is a pumpkin show. We ain't got a lot of diversity. We just reach whoever's around us. We don't care 
how dark or light they are. We don't care about that. What we want is for them to come to Jesus. They come to Jesus. They're ours. We, we don't care what their historical background is. It makes no difference to us. You're going to live in history or you're going to live for eternity. That's what you've got to decide. And we're people of eternity. That's what we do. And God is the one that has done this. God is the one that will cause that. And it comes through salvation in Jesus. Man can't do it. And the foundation of our prayer is that we are marveling at the purpose and power of God to create His own family out of a rebellious humanity from every corner of the world, from every kind of tribe, from every kind of ethnicity, and He's making them one through the blood of Jesus. And that's what we marvel at. And so when we come to God in prayer, there needs to be a larger scope in our mind besides what's going on on our little block in Chillicothe. There needs to be the eternal look of the purpose of God. We need to be able to see through the lenses, the broad lenses of all that God is doing. We go through a little thing of COVID for a year here. And uh, all we hear about is, boy, it must be the end of the world. Dear God, really? There are more people that are dying for their faith in Christ that are being killed with COVID. Do you know that? All over the world. But not here of course. Only thing we can think of here is security, safety and health. That's our trinity. That's all we worry about. And the rest of the world dying, going to hell. And Christians all over the world being murdered and persecuted for their faith. Their blood will be spilled today. And we have no concern about the church. None. Getting hot in here, isn't it? That's when we we become so self-centered, so selfish, and then we just lose our minds over it. Oh, are, are you not prepared to die? Okay, we're gonna have a funeral here. I'm gonna do a funeral for you guys one of these days. I'm gonna I'm gonna do all y'all's funeral right here. We'll get it over with, so that you'll be prepared, because it is appointed to man wants to die, and after that the judgment. In case you didn't know that. I thought part of the thing that we did was help you prepare to die so that you're ready. That you don't have to fear. The devil is the one that puts us in fear of that, not God. You think, God, I'm going to save you in Jesus, but why won't you be afraid of death now? So what I'm going to do to you. That's not of God. That's of the devil. The scripture's clear about that. Get, get, your, get your thoughts, get your mind upon the grand, the large that God is doing. People are coming to faith in China right now by the thousands those people over there are just ratcheting down on more people coming to Jesus. You know what you have to do to qualify to be a pastor in China right now? Have been in jail. I didn't put that one on my resume. I didn't feel like it would fly here. But if you haven't been in jail for your faith, you just really hadn't done anything. So they don't want, want you as a pastor there if you haven't done it. Right? Now, I think that's a little bit of a false thing, you know. But, but nonetheless, they're serious about this matter. And, and God is doing a great work. It's, look at the large view of things. Look at this. Paul says the foundation of his plea is this, this grand purpose and power of God at work. And then the perfection of God as well. He says in verse 16 that he's, he's bowing his knees before the Father. And he says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you these things. What is the foundation? What's the basis of praying? The perfection of God. The riches of His glory. This speaks of the glorious attributes of God. We've already discovered in this book that His power is infinite. His love is immeasurable in chapter 2. His mercy is inestimable. This is the, the well from which the apostle is drawing. He's reaching down in this. And from this well of God, this fresh water of the attributes of God, the purity of God itself, he's saying, God, based upon all that you are, I'm drawing upon that because I want you to pour this out on the church. Do you know why you can't pray? You don't know the attributes of God. You don't think about them. You don't think about those things in prayer. You think about chick, chick, your little circumstance. Oh God, this is tough. And so that, that, that's our praying. And so there's no faith in our praying. There's no vastness. When you begin to discover the attributes of God, what God is really like, you know what happens? The problem you thought you had, you forget. You forget about it. 
You get lost in who God is, and then all of a sudden you just realize, I don't even know what I was asking. It must not have been that big a deal because I, I figure God's got it. And so you're, you're good. But you don't, you don't think in that way. You don't think in those terms. Everything's a, emergency prayer. Oh, I got this. Oh, I'm, I got to go to the doctor's, have a prayer. Oh, I, my car's not running. I got to have prayer. And so that's how your prayer life is. Does that match what Paul's doing is my question. Does your prayer life look like this? Then it may say something to us then, right? There's a reason we don't have power in prayer. It doesn't look like this. But this kind of praying births confidence that something incredible is on the horizon for this church at Ephesus. And now remember this, that he desires not only that the church at Ephesus, but the church at large everywhere, all believers everywhere, should embrace God's glorious purpose. When we pray, do we know the glorious attributes of God? So I, I need help. Okay, the Bible is a great help. Use it. God's all in there. But one thing you can do when you're reading your Bible is you, you ask yourself a simple question. What does this say about God? Write it in the margin of your Bible. Every time you read, write, write something there that tells you about this is what God is like. Now, let me, let me help you with something here that will leave you, uh, you, you'll leave this place going, I, my brain is hurting. L let me help you with something. We have the Word of God. Okay, listen carefully. We have the Word of God. And the Word of God is accurate. But the words about God in here, that the things that the words that are used to talk about God, they're not sufficient. When we say the wisdom of God, we're using a human word. That word, wisdom, does not have the capacity to embrace and contain God's wisdom. We talk about the love of God. The word love, it doesn't have the capacity to describe and to admit fully what that means about God. All that we can do is we take it and we know from a human perspective and our study of Scripture what that means and what we can grab hold of. But it means more. It's beyond. It's beyond. And I'll show you what I'm talking about in just a second. It's beyond what you've ever thought. We don't have the capacity to even think of what it means and God has condescended and given us his word so that we could at least have a starter on who God really is now when you wear the word out we'll talk about the further okay this is more this is more than what we can comprehend just what's in this book and but and just think every time you read about the attribute of God it God is like that but infinitely more You haven't discovered him yet. And you and I will never fully grasp him. Welcome to the Discovery Channel. The perfection of God. So when we pray, do we know enough of the glorious attributes of God that we can base our prayers on them? If not, we're just shooting in the dark. We're just throwing stuff out there. This is the foundation of prayer. The powerful purpose of God building his church and based upon his glorious attributes, having those firmly in our sights, when we have that in our heart, then our praying will be powerful. But until then, we're just piddling around in the dirt, killing ants, pulling up grass, doing some other childish things with prayer that never lead to seeing the power of God at work. Now what's Paul's ambition here? Oh good, it's only 15 till i got 45 more minutes. Poor Pastor Dan. Um, every Sunday, uh, Pastor Dan, he, he's, 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 he's the detail guy. And um, so he, he, man, he goes down the list, of, like when doing the worship service, I'm going to tell the secret. And uh, man, he's got it down to the second, like how long a song takes. And, you know, and I'm, I'm, looking, I mean, he's, I'm looking at this like, well, this is going to be three minutes and 12 seconds. And so it's great. And then, you know, the video's this long and so on. And then um, I just noticed about the sermon. Uh, I think next Sunday he's probably just going to put question mark 
he, he, he try, he's trying. He's really trying, and I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm making his life hard. So, Pastor Dan, I'm going to try to do better, but I, I, I'm not going to be easily reformed, I know. So, what is Paul's ambition in his petition? Okay, so what does he really want? Okay, so he's, he's brought himself to a place of submission, recognizing God is his grand, great purpose, and he's become a part of that through no merit of his own, but by God's grace. And now he's, gonna, he's praying based upon what he knows to be the purpose and power of God and the, and the person of God and the perfection of God. He's got those clearly in his sight. Now he's ready to ask. And so what is he going to petition? What is he going to ask? Well, look at verse 16 and the rest of all the way down to 19 here. Look at this. Uh, verse 16 says that, and then you have according to the riches of his glory, which we spoke of, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's six sermons right there. But let me get it in a few minutes uh, just as an overview if we can. Paul's ambition. One, for God's people to be strengthened by the Spirit. For God's people to be strengthened by the Spirit. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power. And, and this power is the ability kind of power. That he may give you the powerful ability... Now, what is, the, what is the means of that? How they get that? Well, it's through the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the one that will do it. Where is he doing that? In the inner being, in the inner man, in your inner person, in the deepest recesses of your heart. That's where the Spirit is at work. This is the difference now between Christianity and Religion. This is the difference between reforming people and redeeming people. Social reform is one thing. But the redemption of a human is a totally different matter. And it's the difference. What's the difference? Outward and inward. Plain and simple. All the religions of the world are trying to get you to outwardly conform to something. And you're to just grab yourself up by your bootstraps and make it happen. And so you you, you got to do that. And and so sometimes uh, their method is you know meditation where you reflect upon yourself and your own inner abilities and powers, and your desires and the things that you'd like to see happen, and it brings about a sense of peace in your life because you're meditating on the fact that you really would rather be in a cabin in the woods by lake fishing rather than going to work and flipping burgers. That sounds like being delusional to me. But, but that, that's it. That's Eastern mysticism. And so you, you do that. Others, you know, bloody yourself, travel, go to certain locations in the world, uh, make sure you visit those things, visit powerful people, religious people, shake hands with them, whatever you got to do, hug them, I don't know. And so you have all those things. And then you have the disciplines of giving money that you have to give a certain amount. I like the Muslim, I like the Islamic example. The preacher comes to your house and gets it. Notice you weren't in church today. Obviously, you didn't give. Let's have it. Um, so, yeah. so, you know, somebody's going to hear that. and um, What is it about God's people that they don't have a sense of humor? Especially those out of fellowship with Jesus. Um, yeah, nothing's funny to them. I'm like, you know, you know what's not funny is your life right now. But other than that, it's okay. Um, you know, but you, you know, religion has all this stuff. Well, what what God is after is the heart, and and if you can get the heart, you can, you can change, you can direct the person, right? You can change the person that way. And so what Paul is saying is, I, I want the Spirit of God to powerfully work in your heart to the place. That you're given an ability in your inner person. Now, what that ability is, is what? 
Speaking in tongues? No. Healing? No. Miracles? No. Why do we always go toward the circus? I don't know. That's, it's something much more profound than that. And, and, and here it is. For God's people to be controlled by Christ. He wants the Holy Spirit to give you the power, the ability to allow yourself to be controlled by Christ. Did you know that that takes the power of God to bring you and I to the place where we are opening ourselves to submission to our king so that he may do what he wants to do in our lives. The lordship of Jesus is a one-time commitment. We make the commitment to his lordship at salvation. There's no other way to be saved except by Jesus being lord. But upon that commitment then comes the practicality of it. And the old man in us, the depraved nature in us, still likes to fight. And we like to fight our king, our friend. The Spirit of God is the one that gives us the power, the ability to put that down, to put that to death. And to just roll the red carpet out so that Jesus can be more than just the resident in our heart, but he can be the president. That's what he's at work doing. That takes the power of God. Don't you find yourself as a Christian bringing your, reeling your trust back in all the time? You trust, you trust Jesus. I know you do. But something comes down the pike in your life, and the first thing that we tend to do is roll that back in and say, man, i got to take care of this thing, and, and Jesus, I hope you do something, but right now i got to... And we have a tendency to throw our trust back upon ourselves. That's usually our first step. And it takes the power of the Spirit of God to stop that in our lives. Now, this is not talking about the indwelling of Christ at salvation. That's not what it's talking about. You know that as soon as you trust upon Jesus as Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ begins to live in harmony, in connection with your spirit, with your soul. You know that. So that's a one-time thing. He, you know, your heart's not a hotel where Jesus checks in and out. Okay, it's not that. But what this is talking about is this. God, to develop such a heart in our lives that Christ wouldn't be like a guest, but that the things that are going on in our hearts are exactly the kind of home that Jesus likes. You see... When you move into a home, you move into a house, what do you do? First thing you do is what? You paint, right? You start painting stuff. Why? Because the person that was there had different tastes. And so you begin to paint. And then what else do you do? You clean. And you put stuff up on the wall that's about you and about your family and so on. The things that make you comfortable. Things that mean something to you. And you get that other stuff out of there. You put it in a yard sale. You sneak and put it in the neighbor's garbage can. And so you, you, you get rid of that stuff. Why? Because this is now your home. The, the building is one thing, but to be your home, you've you got to make it your home. And you put your furniture in. You put the pictures of your kids up on the wall, right? And, and, and you put the curtains up that you want. And you decorate the way that you want. Why? Because you're making it your home. And it's the same thing with your heart. When you come to Jesus, He moves in. But there's a lot of stuff in there. There's, there's furniture that's got to go. There's stuff in the closet that needs to be cleaned out. Things that just don't make him comfortable, it needs to go. There are things on the wall of your heart that he, it needs to go. Things that you think on, things that you like, things that you, you meditate on, those things need to go. Why? Because they make Jesus uncomfortable. And so what the Spirit of God does is the Spirit of God gives you the ability, those things that you're attached to, that are an affront to Christ and make Christ uncomfortable in your life, those things the Spirit of God gives you the ability to say, and I will let that go. Now, guys, you know what this is like, right? When you get married, all that ugly furniture and stuff you got and you think so cool, it's got to go, right? That, that is not, that, that's not family stuff. That's, that's a guy stuff. So it's got to go. And so it's just, when Christ moves in, it's just got to go. And so the Holy Spirit of God, this is what Paul's praying, not just for the church at Ephesus, but, but God's people everywhere. 
that the Spirit of God would so work in their life that He would give them the ability that they could let those things go and get them out of their life so that Christ can really settle down in their heart and that they would enjoy Him by faith. By faith. Now, notice this. When Christ... This is good. So when Christ dwells in your heart through faith, then what, what happens then? When, when your heart becomes like that, where we're getting rid of the things that make Christ uncomfortable, instead of that, what do we want to do? Be rooted and grounded in love. What love is that? That's God's love. God's love in our lives. And that word doesn't mean sappy emotionalism. You know, some of you have a personality that's just mild by nature. And it's just personality. And thank God for that, right? I mean, you, you just have this ease about you as a person. And you're the kind of person that people don't mind being around. And, and all those things. That's a, but you know what that is not? It's not godliness. It's personality. We want to be careful. It, it just seems to me that everything about Christianity in our day, and I don't know if it's just our community or whatever, but it just seems that if people have that personality, we think that means Christianity. Can we, for, the, for God's sake, can we find a man or woman in this town that's passionate about Christ? Not just mildly sort of okay with everything. That, that's not what he's... What, what is this love thing that he's talking about? This is a passion for selflessness. The very opposite. See, a lot of people are mild and kind for self-preservation. Selfish motive. Do you realize that? It's not what you think. People, the heart is a deceitful little thing. And so what he's talking about here is God's kind of love. That our lives would be founded upon that. That the, the root cause of our being is selflessness. Giving ourselves away for the purpose of God. Now, when that happens, think, think, if we can think of it in this, this way, think of this. Paul's praying to be strengthened by the Spirit so that they can make their heart a great home for Jesus. And that being done, then what happens is that their life is then going to be rooted in Christ's kind of love. Why? Because if you're with Christ a lot, He's going to rub off on you. Right? That's our, that's our suffering Savior. It's going to rub off on you. Then what? When you begin and I begin to live that way, guess what happens next? We have another kind of strength that comes our way in verse 18. To comprehend with all the saints. Now comprehend here does not mean having an, a mental understanding. It means more like apprehend. You know the difference, don't you? Somebody can explain something to you and you understand every word that they're saying. But it's not the same as apprehending it like, I got that. Some of you, like you're in college, you're in math class. You're working the problem, you have no idea what you're doing. You're just following the pattern and you may even get the answer right. But the concept of what they're trying to teach you, if they put a different problem up on the board that requires the same concept, you'll miss it because you haven't apprehended it yet. It's the same thing with Christ. Many of us have a head full of knowledge about Jesus. And it's a great thing that we do. We want to keep knowledge like that is necessary. But at some point, the Holy Spirit of God has to give you the ability to apprehend it. And I mean to get hold of it so that it gets hold of you. That's what you You need to have that moment where you're like, ah, I got it. My life is to be rooted and grounded in selflessness for the sake of the kingdom of Christ. Give myself away until there's nothing left of my life. And then I go to be with him. You see, we have a method among us is to gain everything that we can. Keep everything that we can. Save everything we can. Don't let any of it get out of our hands. And then we die and some ungrateful grandkids get a hold of it. Really, I see it over and over again. I'm like, we, we expend our lives on Nothing. On leisure. Now, I think everybody ought to have some leisure time and some recreation. But we expend our lives on it. We live for it. And we live for recreation. We live for all entertainment. We live for all those things. 
and then our life is over. And we have not been rooted and grounded in selfless love, the God kind of love. And therefore, we never really apprehend this. The breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. You and I cannot really, really apprehend and know the love of Christ until we start living it. Until that becomes the guiding force in our lives of giving ourselves away rather than gathering for ourselves. Giving ourselves away for the sake of the kingdom of God. Until we get to that point, we never really really ever will understand our Savior. Think about this. Let's say you have absolutely no concept of mechanics. You, you don't know how a car runs. You don't even care. You're not even sure where you put the gasoline in. But you have a, a relative that is a mechanic. And they come to your house for the weekend. And you're talking to them. What are you going to talk about? Their, their life is that. You're over here with nothing. Now, some people are good at asking questions and making it look like they're interested. But they're discarding the information as soon as they get it. They're good at that. They're really great. We call them conversationalists. We don't call them learners. So they're good at it. Maybe you do that. But he leaves, and you still have the same interest as before he came. Nothing in common. As a matter of fact, you're hoping he doesn't come back too early because you don't want to talk through all that again. It's not something that you understand or you really even care about. Do you understand that? So, in the same way, if we... Don't make our lives the kind of dwelling place that Christ wants to be in. And then, having been with Him so much that our lives begin to be grounded and founded upon His kind of love for the sake of His name and the sake of His glory and the sake of His kingdom that we're willing to give ourselves away like He gave Himself away for us. And we don't ever get to that point. And we never pursue that in our lives. But we keep pursuing the other then we never really ever get to the place that we apprehend with all the saints. We never apprehend with Abraham. We never apprehend with Moses. We never apprehend with John or James or Peter. We never grab hold of this. The breadth and length and height and depth and to really know by experience, and that's what the word means, to know by experience the love of Christ. And notice what kind of love it is that surpasses knowledge. Do you know some things that you can't explain? Oh man, I, when I used to coach basketball, I'm like, what is it about this you don't get? Put the ball in a basket. Some things you feel and you know it that way because it's just part of your being. And many of us have never really gotten to that place with Christ. Where his love is just a part of our being. You know why? We're still back here, verse 17. Not really willing to make our heart a comfortable place for Christ to be. Oh, he's there. But it's uncomfortable. You ever been to somebody's house like that and stayed all night and it's uncomfortable? You're like, man, I can't wait to get out of here. It's not comfortable. Note, all of this is given to the believer by God. And what happens? Then God's people are filled with the fullness of the Father in verse 19. What does that mean? Does that mean you become a little God? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that your life then truly begins to reflect the Father of your family. Do you see? So where are you in this process? I mean, you know, this is a prayer, but it, it's, it's not just any old prayer. This is a prayer about what it truly means to live out the Christian life. Are you praying these kinds of things for yourself, first of all? Do you pray these kinds of things for your church family, second of all? Then do you pray these kinds of things for believers around the world? People that are they're going through the fire, do you, are you praying these things? Is, is this the kind of Christianity you want to see? I wonder what the outcome would be. I mean, I wonder what would happen. 
we fully began to get hold of in some way the love of Christ, what it really is. And our lives are just built on that. I wonder what would happen. Well, let's conclude it. We've got to stop. Time's up. Building churches with flesh-driven diversity quotas is futile and faithless. Let's put that on the record. What is needed in our churches instead and in our individual lives is this kind of praying. This kind of praying is not concerned about person's circumstances or ethnicity or anything else. But this kind of praying pleads for resemblance to our Heavenly Father through the church. The work here is aimed not at the outward man but at the inner man. The work here is not aimed at social reform. It's aimed at redemption of the soul. This is the kind of praying that's going to reach into heaven. This is the kind of praying that will receive power. This is the kind of praying that will baffle the world. God answers this kind of praying. And when he does, the unexplainable begins to happen through your life and in your life. But you and I have to change the direction and nature and character of our praying in order for it to happen. The plea from the scripture for each one of us would be this. Would you be willing to bend your prayer so that it points heavenward for the glory of God? Would you be willing to do that? We have a pattern here for prayer. We have a way, we have the attitude we're supposed to have, the ambition, all of those things. Doing that, God being our helper, we would see the power of God in our lives, upon our church, and even in our world. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. And I pray, Father, that we would take heed to that. And Lord, would you work in our lives through the conviction of the Spirit of God that we may learn to have an ambition for something other than mere comfort and, Lord, mere uh, outward blessings. As much as we're thankful for those things, Father, and love you for them, help us to look for and strive for and aim for something much deeper and higher and longer lasting in our lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this for the glory of Jesus and for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. We come to a place now in our worship service that we need to uh, 